Ghost chips we like. The um, feta and garlic ones. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love So good. Ones. I bought a bag of them last night and like almost ate the entire packet. I was feeling like such a glutton. Uh, I actually think it's gluten and gluttony is a sin. Yeah. And you know, God hates sinners. Yeah. That's exactly what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. So I left like three chips and I felt so much better. <laughs> That is the intro to our new sermon series called The Bible Doesn't Say That. And I always suspected that uh, gluten was a sin, but I can't find that one in the Bible. Have you ever uh, had a time in your life where someone's given you some advice and it sounds good, but it didn't really end up being that helpful? Have you ever had one of those moments in your life? You know, back in June, my family and I decided that we were going to try our hand at skiing again, snow skiing, right? And so we headed uh, down to the southern end of New South Wales, where all the mountains are, and uh, stayed in Jindabyne for a few days. Uh, we'd done some skiing before, but you know, we're definitely beginners. And there was something in me that said, you want to do some skiing, Nathan? This is going to be great, right? So we headed down there, and the plan was... We were going to head to Smiggins. Okay, if you know the, uh, the area down there, there's like three or four ski fields. And uh, Smiggins was the place you go to when you can't really ski. Okay, it's, it's a little bit easier. And we got up there and it wasn't open yet. And so we had to keep driving up to Parrish. Now, Parrish is a beautiful place, recommended if you haven't been there before. And of course, you hire your skis and boots and poles and all that sort of stuff. And you kind of fumble your way up onto the snow and you head to the, the bunny slopes. Who's been snow skiing before? Oh, good. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, you head to the bunny sl uh, slopes and, um, and that was pretty good. So the four of us were doing that. And, you know, you can pick that up pretty quickly. But after a while, let's be honest, it gets a little boring because it only takes you 20 seconds to get down that slope. And then you've got to wait in line with all the lessons, people, to get all the way back up the top just to zip down in 20 seconds again. And so after about two hours of this, I thought, there's got to be something better than this, more to life, you know. And, and I'm gazing at the parish of Front Valley there and thinking, that's where I've got to go. This, this would be a lot better. So I said to the guy manning the, the magic carpet on the bunny slope, is that the next place you go after you've done this? Yes, that's where you go. Do you I said, you've been watching me go down. Do you think I'm ready? He said, yeah, you're ready to do that. Just do, make sure you do the pizza, you know, the wedge, which is when you put your skis like that and that will slow and you'll be fine. Okay, advice taken. So I um, convinced Natasha that this would be a good idea and no, she was good, don't worry. <laughs> so we made our way down to the... The, the lift, it's called the Village 8. Kind of bumbled my way onto that thing, you know. I've got skis going in all directions and my poles and all the people are sitting there kind of looking at me like this because I'm, how do you do this anyway? We got up to the top, I got off and I survived. I was pretty happy about that, made it up the lift. And the first section up there was great. It was, it was probably about 20, 30 metres. I was zigzagging my way, doing my pizza shape. And you go over an edge. <laughs> Now, this is supposed to be a green run, apparently, okay? It felt diamond, black, is it black diamond, Rachel? Whatever the heart, it, that's what it felt like to me as we go over the edge. And the speed picks up instantly. And I'm doing the pizza, and I'm doing the wedge, trying to slow myself down. 
And I thought, okay, it's okay, I'm doing okay. Turned a few times, went back the other way a few times, and then it goes a little bit steeper. And at this stage, I'm out of control. (laughs) And the advice that I got was pizza and you'll be okay did not work. Okay, and of course, I, I completely wiped out. I'm lying on the ground. I've got skis going in all directions. I don't know how to get them in the right directions. There's people going past me. It feels like they're doing 300 kilometers an hour. Don't hit me, please. I'm going to die. I remember someone told me they had a similar problem like that once. And uh, anyway, I eventually made my way down. And at the bottom, I thought that was not good advice because I was not ready for that. The problem is I'm a stubborn guy. And so over the next two days, I gave that front rally run and about three or four more goes and probably got worse every single time I went down it. <laughs> and um, the point was this. Sometimes you get advice that doesn't turn out that good. Maybe it was more my fault than his. But, you know, when those guys have been skiing since they were... And, and this is the other thing. You've got, like, these seven-year-olds <laughs> that are just... And they're at the bottom, down on the lift and up they go again. And you just feel, it makes you feel really useless. But anyway, maybe skiing's not for me. We'll try again one day. We'll see what happens. Today, here's the thing. That advice, I've found sometimes it happens in our Christian culture too, right? Sometimes we get what we think is good advice and it feels like it's, it's right because it kind of sounds familiar with the Bible. And we've been hearing it for like 20 years But it's not always good advice. We think the Bible says things that sometimes it doesn't really say. There's more nuance to it than we absolutely think. So today we're starting this new four-week series that deals with this stark reality that not all advice within the church actually can be good advice. And so our goal is to try and clear up just a few misunderstandings and just to help us perhaps think deeper about some things that we may assume to be true. So here's what's going to happen. This week I'm doing a... um, My sermon title is going to be called, The Bible Doesn't Say That, God Hates Sinners. Next week and week two will be Everything Happens for a Reason. That's going to be from Pastor Adam. Week three will be God Helps Those Who Helps Themselves. That's going to be Pastor Steve. And week four will be God Won't Allow Us More Than We Can Handle. And that is going to be exciting because Claire Marcatinus is going to be doing her first sermon here in this church. You might ask, why Claire? Well, actually, there's a good reason. She's a ministerial candidate. She feels the call to ministry and has been studying now for a couple of years, has preached some sermons in other places, and it's time for her to preach here. And that's what we do here, right? We raise up new leaders and pastors. And so make sure you're here for that week. Pack it out, right? she'll She'll want 300 people here for sure. Yeah. Now, when you look at those sermon titles, you might think, but the Bible does say those things. But our challenge is to be good Bible scholars and make sure it actually does say it or doesn't say it, or if it does, do we understand the right context? Do we, does it actually mean what we think it means? So this morning we're starting with God hates sinners. Now, it's probably true to say, I think that this one... Most of you would say, well, I don't even know why you're bothering with that one, because we would all agree that the Bible doesn't say that. Am I right? Well, what if I told you it does say that? Yeah, I know, stunned silence. You better show me, Pastor, because I don't believe it. All right? Now, look, I've got to be honest. This particular sermon title did go to someone else first and got handed back to me, because this is hard. This is hard, this one. 
And I had to spend a lot of time working through this message and try to um, be a good Bible scholar and understand what's going on. So here's the most clear-cut example. It's in Psalms 5.5, where David says, The proud may not stand in your presence, for you hate all who do evil. It's shocking, isn't it? That feels like it goes against everything that we've ever known. So straight away, the premise for my message that the Bible doesn't say that God hates sinners, it seems false. You're like, well, why is that even your sermon title? Because you just showed me that it does say that. There it is right there. It's behind me. When you read that verse, you can see how some believers, and there are some, they loudly proclaim that God hates you if you're doing wrong. They've taken that verse, and there is another one in Psalms, and there's one in Proverbs as well, and they've decided that the message from the Bible that they want you to proclaim to the world is that God hates you, and the Bible says so, if you're doing the wrong thing, if you're a sinner. And I think of people like, um, you've probably heard of the Westboro Baptist Church in America, right? They like to picket funerals and things like that and hold up signs that say that God hates you. They've taken that message and applied it. But I think they've applied it wrong. If it's in the Bible, why am I saying today that the Bible doesn't say that? Isn't that a... It feels like a contradiction, doesn't it? As as I said, we are students of the Bible. It's important for us to interpret the Bible correctly. And the best interpreter of Scripture is what? It's Scripture. What I mean is, if our interpretation is that God hates sinners based on this verse, what does the rest of the Bible say about our interpretation, about what we've read there? If that's what we think it says, and it does say that, the rest of the Bible should have no trouble confirming it, right? Scripture must interpret Scripture. It must confirm it, okay? If you read something in the Bible and you feel like it's a strong message, then you need to find other places in the Bible that confirms that you've got your interpretation correct. Thank you. And as we're going to find out today from cover to cover, the Word of God is abundantly clear about God's love for all people including those who haven't accepted Jesus and his gift of salvation and are still living in sin. So let's start. Let me show you. Romans is the clear... Actually, there's lots of clear-cut ones, but let me start with Romans. Chapter 5, verse 8. God showed his what? Great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Does God love sinners? So straight away... We see this incredible, absolute depth of God's love for sinners. In fact, it's such a deep love. He loves those us so much. He's like, I'm just going to die for you. Because I don't want to be out of relationship with you. We know John 3.16 confirms this one. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The overwhelming message from the Bible is one of love for every person, not just those who believe and have accepted Jesus. Everyone. God loved the world. Everyone. Ephesians 2. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And it's only by God's grace that you have been saved. Praise the Lord. On top of all these clear scriptures are the commands to become like Jesus. Remember, we just talked about this in our Colossians series. Become like Jesus is what we're called to do. The key way to become like Jesus 
is to love other people. There's no room for ambiguity. He's black and white on this one. Remember he said you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's how Jesus is and we're becoming like him. He says don't get revenge when someone does something against you. You Turn the other cheek. If someone takes a shirt, give them your coat too. And then there's the greatest command given directly from Jesus himself. He said you've got to love God. This is the, the most important thing in your life. You must love God with all of you. Heart, soul, mind, body. Love God and your neighbor. Someone said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? And he told the story of the Good Samaritan. It could be the person who's least like you. You have to love them. The scriptures even say, all the law hangs on the command to love your neighbor. All the law. That means everything we read in the Old and New Testament hangs on the command to love others. Then there's this, 1 John 2. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. This one always challenges me. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. That's amazing, actually. There's nothing in them to make them stumble. Starting with love. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. See, there's this clear connection, isn't there, between hate being darkness and love being light. In other words, not having a connection with Jesus who is in the light is where the darkness can come from. Hate and light don't seem to go together, so therefore hate and Jesus don't go together. 1 John 4.8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You know, for, mm, just stop and think about this for a second. How's our love going? How's our love going? Because it points to how we love God, how we know God. The very definition of love is God himself. He is love. God is love. If I want to explain love, I can just point to God. You want to know what love means? It's Jesus. I can't point to him to explain hate. The entire Bible is a story of God's love for humanity, of redeeming us, of our brokenness and destruction and sin, of second and third and fourth chances, of sacrifice for us, of constant pursuit of us until we open the door to him. You remember we preached on this again recently, the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus says, I'm just going to leave you guys behind. It's risky. I'm going to do it because I'm so concerned about that one that's gone astray, that's not with me. And that's what he does. And yet Psalm 5 says in there that God hates evildoers. You know, given everything we just said, there must be more to this than what we see on the surface. We have to keep it in mind and consider that David, the psalmist, was not saying that God hates in the way we think of hate, perhaps. Because it, it stands against everything else in the scripture, right? If that's the way we're thinking. Because scripture must interpret scripture. So something, in my opinion, something else is going on in Psalm 5. I'm going to be honest. Maybe I don't know the complete answer to this. But here's some thoughts that I've got from my own, um, just contemplating it and reading some, what, what some others also think is going on here. The first thing is this. The first thought is this. 
that the understanding of the Hebrew word for hate actually has more than one meaning. While on the one hand it's a classical meaning of hate as we understand it, on the other it can be interpreted as standing against someone or opposed to someone and hating their evil actions. Standing against someone still leaves room for God to love the person, the very person made in his image. And you know what, I'm, I'm okay with this view because the person I read that from underst- understands Hebrew well. And I can accept that that might be what's going on here. The second view is that God in his sovereignty has the ability to hate and love people at the same time, an ability that we don't have or understand ourselves. I'm probably not a subscriber to this view, given what I've just been reading. And yet it is a view that's held. And the third idea is that David, the author of the psalm, or perhaps author is not even the right word, he's a poet. Because it is a poem, often uses poetic language, and poets use language devices like imagery, metaphors, similes, personification, hyperbole, and there's even prophecy in psalm, right? And we need to understand that that is the style or the literary style of writing that David uses and others use in the psalms. We have to take those tools of the language into account because when you read the psalms, especially the, lament, the laments, David often speaks to God in a very, you know, a very personal and emotional way, doesn't he? You know, he'll... There's times when he, exp- he expresses frustration with what God's doing, exasperation. He says, God, you're not even with me right now. You've forsaken me. And none of those things are really true. And yet he's using, he's saying that in his, in his poetry. He's talking to God in a very personal way. He shares his deep feelings and he conveys that, that relationship with God. By the way, it's a great example for us. Sometimes we can express ourselves to God, but we always have to come back to the truth of who God is in the scriptures and who he is to us. So that third school of thought is that David was expressing in a poetic way how much God hates and detests the evil that his enemies kept doing against him, that they kept coming against him. And on this particular view, I've probably got some sympathy for that one as well. So there's three ideas of why Psalm 5.5 would say that. Like I say, it's not that clear-cut, but you can't tell people that the message of the Bible is that God hates sinners and then use that to bash people over the head because in its totality, the Bible is overwhelmingly clear. This book says God loves sinners. And so that's why I can use that in my sermon title today, that it's not in the Bible, because the Bible says that God loves sinners. Is anyone agreeing with me? Good, good, good. If you don't, it's okay. Come and see me afterwards and you can set me straight in all those things that happen and that'll be no problem. Now look, so where am I going with this? Because we're on this topic of hate. And I want to address a very common phrase that we use in Christian circles that you probably have seen many times and that's this one, love the sin, I hate the sin. You've all heard that, right? In of itself, this statement probably is biblically correct, and yet I would caution you about not using this statement, and I would caution you about living by it, in fact. And it might surprise you a little bit, but I want you to just hear me out on this. Because whenever I've heard a Christian use this phrase in discussions around what is accepted by culture and and not by God's word, it it makes me uncomfortable because we're not God. And what I mean by that is that God has the ability to clearly separate those two things, to do the hating of the sinner and to completely love the sinner. And to be honest, we are not that good. I'm sharing this view based on my own experience. I believe 
it will extend to most of you. Because the truth is, when we see the sin in people, especially that one that we really don't like, and if we live by that statement of hate that sin, it, it, it really does affect my ability to love that person. Especially if they don't see it as a sin, you know, that's who they are. And I'm hating on that thing. I'm, my ability to love them is very much reduced. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be vulnerable. It's something that happened in my life that I'm not proud of. But we, we did live in New Farm for a year, my, my family. And one night I was coming home late from a function and I stopped at the night owl. You know, to grab a chocolate milk or whatever it was at the time. That's what you do when you're coming home at 11 o'clock at night. And um, I was heading for my car, and I was approached by uh, a lady who wasn't a lady, and propositioned. This, these things happen in New Farm. Okay, if you've ever lived around there or, or walked through there, it wasn't the only time that happened to me as well. But when she came to me, my immediate reaction you know, was to kind of recoil a little on the inside. And it's probably something that bordered on disgust, I guess you would say. This is going back about 15 plus years. And I walked away shaking my head and I didn't say anything in return. Of course you're going to walk away eventually. I'm not saying that that was the wrong thing to do. I'm not proud of that because my hate-the-sin approach probably overwhelmed my love-the-sinner part that was supposed to be the primary thing. When I look back now, you know, I long to relive that moment and to do that's just something different, just to use some words of light instead. Nothing judgmental, nothing condemning. Just some words of light. And that's why I say we need to rethink... I know that's an extreme example... But I'm saying we need to rethink this love the sinner, hate the sin phrase. I feel like it gives us an easy pass to not love the sinner like Jesus does because we can put hate onto something that they do, especially if they don't see their actions as sin. So I'm looking for this new approach or a new, what's the new phrase that we can use? Instead of love the sinner, hate the sin, I'm trying to come up with something I can live, lie, live by. So the, I've got some ideas. These might need some work. You can help me with it if you want. You can talk to me afterwards, put it on the back of your connections card if you want. But here's one I've got. Love the sinner, show compassion for their sin. Because I think this is where it should lead us. When we see someone stuck in those sort of... that It's bondage, isn't it, really? We see someone who's living that life. Instead of hating it, we see the effects of it and we know that there's um, freedom to be had and, and it brings compassion into our hearts. I think that that's the answer for us. Love that person, have compassion for what's happening in their life. Or the second one I've got is love the sinner, be concerned with my own sin. You know what I mean? Like we, we say quick to rush to judge. What about me? I can only be responsible really for what's going on here. Not in someone else's heart. Yes, there's times when we have to help people and encourage people and lead them into light. I'm not saying we don't do that, okay? I hope you're not seeing, hearing me say anything that, like, that sin is, not a, that sin is okay. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm talking about how we love somebody because, honestly, they're not going to care less about doing, changing the way they live until they know, know that you actually truly do love them and care for them. In fact, they're not even going to hear a message until that first barrier is crossed. 
There's an Old Testament scripture that, that um, it's very famous. It's from Micah. And he says, He has shown you, mortal one, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Act justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. Isn't that amazing? Act justly. You know, what does God want of me? Just forget all the junk. Wade through all that junk for a second and push it aside. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. So the third idea I had was love the sinner, show them mercy, be humble. I think that one works better than love the sinner, hate the sin. If you can come up with a phrase that's better, maybe it's catchy or whatever, then let me know. My point is that the sin we should hate is our own first and foremost, and the sin of others should lead us to compassion for the damage and harm that they're bringing to themselves. You know, it, it moves us to, to have like a brokenheartedness. As always, Jesus shows the way. Here we go, John chapter 8. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple, and a crowd had soon gathered, and he sat down and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Why is it always just the woman? They put her in front of the crowd, and teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses says, stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his fingers. fingers. And they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped back down and he started writing in the dust again. When the accusers heard this, They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman. He stood up again and he said to the woman, Where are all your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. That's the heart that we have for each other and anyone that we come across, no matter who they are, what they've done. In fact, the, I guess the harsh words are left for the religious leaders, aren't they? The legalists. The Bible says that Jesus loves the sinners. That's what this says. And that's every single one of us here today, folks. So church... When you go from this place this week, love the sinner like Jesus did. You know, what did he do? He gave his life. He gave his life for them. And that's what I'm calling us to do today. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. We actually die for people. That's the way it is. Would you pray with me? Lord, I just want to um, thank you that you loved me. (laughs) You loved me. Thank you, Lord, that you loved me. From before I've put my faith in you, right the way up to today. And Lord, how could I dare not show that love to someone else? 
How could we not show grace and mercy and forgiveness to others? So God, help us to be a church that would be like you. We would give our lives for people. And all we would see is the image of God in people and not what they do so much. Because that's what it means to be like Jesus. Thank you that your word confirms in my heart today how much you love me. And God, I want to share that with more people. I pray you give me the opportunities to do that. And that we would fill this world with love and grace and justice and mercy. That all your people would stand up and do that. And represent you. And bring the light into the world. And push away the dark. Lord, to restore this world. To redeem it, Lord. And that's what you do. And Lord, we want to point people to you so that they can experience it too. I pray you'd help us to do that. Lord, if there's any part in us, any part of our heart that still has the hate or the darkness or the hardness in it, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break that down. That you would soften our hearts. Soften our hearts. Even when we come across people that are hard to love, Lord, soften our hearts for them. Because you did. Because you did it for us. Help us, Lord, to be good students of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.